Sustainability, the Potsdam Dialogues, science for a safe tomorrow. Weather can be deadly. You have to be prepared for, for heat waves, for, for heavy rainfall events. We have seen this uh, 2003 heat wave causing 70,000 fatalities in Europe. We are not invulnerable. We have to take climate change very seriously. Wow. Quite some extreme words for extreme weather events. And this is exactly the topic of the new edition of the Sustainability Podcast. Extreme weather events seems to be on the rise. Not in just one part of the world, but all over the globe. Are all of these extreme events connected, or is it just a coincidence? And are they becoming more likely with global warming? Is this our new normal, and if so, how can we adapt to it? But most importantly, what does the science say about extreme weather events? Luckily, we have two extreme weather experts joining the Sustainability Podcast today. They will give insight into their latest research and hopefully answer all our questions. Our first guest is Friederike Otto. Friederike has just joined the Grantham Institute of Climate Change and the Environment at the Imperial College London as a senior lecturer after 10 years at the University of Oxford. She is one of the main inventors, so to say, of the World Weather Attribution Initiative. What this basically means is that she and other scientists use attribution science to help answer the question of whether climate change made heat waves, hurricanes or droughts more likely. We will be talking about this in just a minute. Friederike is also named in this year's Time magazine list of the 100 most influential people in the world, just by the way. Welcome Friederike. Thank you. Our second guest for today is Stefan Ramsdorf. Stefan is co-head of research department on Earth System Analysis of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, PIC, and professor of physics of the oceans at the University of Potsdam. He is not only a highly cited scientist, but also a great science communicator and co-founded the award-winning blogs Real Climate and Klima Lounge. Stefan is also Europe's climate scientist with the most Twitter followers. More than 100,000 people subscribe to his daily updates. Follow him and you'll see why, hey? Welcome, Stefan. Thank you. Okay, cool. So let's get started right away. Both of you um, are investigating to which extent specific weather extremes, as well as extremes in general, can be linked to human-caused climate change. However, you got different approaches, if I understood this correctly. So what are the differences? Stefan, would you go first? Yes, well, we are looking not so much at individual extreme events, but rather at the overall statistics, whether numbers are increasing. And we also try and understand physical mechanisms. Uh, for example, we have uh, looked into the role of planetary waves in the atmosphere uh, and their changes in affecting the likelihood of extreme weather events. Yeah, and so we are we are very much um, trying to answer the question um, whether and to what extent a specific type of extreme event that people have just experienced is um, made more likely or more intense um, because of climate change and thereby, because even for 
Um, well, for example, heat waves. Every heat wave has been made more likely because of climate change. We don't need to do a study to know that. We we have we have known that for a long time, and we see that everywhere in the in the data. But depending on how exactly you you look at the heat wave, how you define the the heat wave, and um, how much more likely they get is 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 different depending on what, which aspects of the heat wave you're looking at. Okay. And can I ask you one more question about your method, Frederike, like the world weather attribution? So one reason your approach is gaining so much attention in the public and in the media is because you're so quick. Like one or two weeks after an extreme event, you can already publish results. So how does this work? So it works because... Um Because we have a, huge, a lot of people who are extremely dedicated in, uh, in, in uh, offering their, their time to this project. So what we do in a, a rapid attribution study is not different to what we do in a, in a peer-reviewed one. And we only do rapid attribution studies um, for the types of events where studies have been done um, that have been peer-reviewed. And we use peer-reviewed methodologies um so so we don't actually do anything that is scientifically terribly new we just apply the same approach to a different extreme event in a, in a different not even a different type of extreme event but just a different extreme event in a different part of the world and so um and we have um yeah we have developed the methodologies to do that over uh, over years and have written down an extremely detailed protocol on on what what needs to be done so what are the steps to do so uh, the first step is to find out what has actually happened get observational data um, talk to um, the disaster relief communities identify find out what what has happened and then define an event and then doing the next steps is then evaluating climate models and then doing um, doing the actual attribution and then also um, Yeah, synthesizing the the results and, and coming up with an with an overall statement. So we have um, everything that we do is is public. Um, so we write down every step in excruciating detail. It's very boring to read, but it's important um, so that we can guarantee transparency. Given that we don't have peer review, so so we have transparency. We we share all the data, so every everyone can come and redo our studies to check that what we have done is actually what we've said we have done. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, so an increasing number of scientists agree that this is important because the question is always asked, is this climate change? And if we don't say anything from the climate community, um, then um, Then at least when we started doing it, there was always people who just had some political views and values who would answer the question about climate change. And so we thought it's really important to bring the evidence in into the debate. And and yeah, we usually so we usually work with teams of um, of of ten or twenty climate scientists who just for a week do nothing else but work on this study. And so that's that's how we can do it. It's just because people feel it's important and so just donate their time. Yeah, it, it is important to be so quick because the standard approach of doing a, a kind of scientific analysis after the event and submitting it to a journal, etc., then about one or two years later, you get 
an article in a scientific journal saying, yes, this was made 60% more likely by climate change or whatever. And nobody cares at that time if the event is, is one or two years past. The, the public doesn't care about it. They want to know pretty soon after such an event what the science can say about it. Mm -hmm. And talking about what the science can say, what can the science actually say about the role that climate change plays for weather extremes? Are they all increasing? So for heat waves and cold waves, climate change is an absolute game changer. So we see heat waves increasing everywhere by orders of magnitudes. Cold waves are generally getting less likely. Um, and ex heavy rainfall events are also increasing in most parts of the world, but we don't see that locally everywhere. Um, and then for droughts, for example, we do see an increase in the likelihood intensity of droughts in the Mediterranean region and in Southern Africa, but not there, there are many other parts in the world we, where we don't see that. Um, and of course, that's sort of just the gen... So, so just from a climate change effect, the extreme events are not all equal. They are, they are very different. But then also what we can say strongly depends on how large um, scale these events are um, because climate models are just better at simulating larger scale events compared to small scale events. And then also there are types of extreme events like hailstorms, for example, where or, or anything really to do with wind where um, the data that we, the observational data is a lot worse than, than for other types of events. So it's, it's very hard to find out what's even happening in the real world. And then uh, you also don't have much to evaluate climate models with. So there our confidence is a lot lower. Okay, okay. I'm just quickly coming back to the increasing heat wave on the one hand and the extreme rainfall on the other. So this seems like a bit of an odd combination to me. Stefan, can you quickly explain that? Well, that's basic physics because the air can take up 7% more moisture per degree of warming. This is a law of physics that every first-term physics uh, student learns, the Clausius-Clapeyron equation, which tells you how the saturation pressure of water vapor increases with temperature, exponentially, by the way. And uh, that's why an increase in extreme rainfall events was already predicted 30 years ago by the early climate models because it's simple physics. We, we all knew this was going to happen. Proving that it is happening, uh, that we see this increase in rainfall event, of course, uh, took much, much longer. It was more difficult because we have very large variability in rainfall from place to place, from time to time. And so extremes by definition are rare. And to have robust statistics, you need many data points and not just two or three events. And that's why often the, the proof that these predicted changes in extremes are actually happening uh, comes decades after it was predicted that they would be happening. But now we see basically these predictions of early climate models and early climate science coming true one after the other. Oh, yeah, that, that's quite interesting. And can you share some more of the trends and results you came across throughout the years of your research? I think the most simple result uh, 
And uh, Frederica already mentioned it, is that heat waves, of course, have become far more likely. And uh, we did a study 10 years ago looking at how often new monthly heat records occur uh, around the globe, like the hottest August on record or so. And uh, at that time, we found that these heat records occurred five times more likely compared to a climate without global warming where, of course, by chance, you can also occasionally get a new record. Uh, we have just updated that study, and now 10 years later, we find it's already eight times more likely that uh, record-breaking monthly uh, temperatures occur. Now, if you compare that with rainfall events, uh, extreme rainfall events, for example, we have also done a, a study with global uh, rainfall uh, station data. Uh, they haven't increased uh, nearly by such a large factor and that is um, only only about by a third rather than by a factor of eight and that has a lot to do uh, i should also be more specific we were talking about daily rainfall records here because the time duration of an event is also a very important parameter whether you look at monthly means or or at daily things uh, this this all is affected by how big the natural variability is. And if you have a very large natural variations, then the climate signal is relatively speaking smaller. And uh, so the number of records doesn't go up as much because it depends on the ratio between the climate signal and the natural variations that occur. And so if you look at monthly mean data, like we did for the temperature, uh, the variability there is not as big as for daily data, for example, because, of course, averaging out over a whole month, uh, a lot of variation cancels out. And so, uh, yeah, that, that is a key factor is how big is the natural variability compared to the climate signal. We are still discussing extreme weather events in the sustainability podcast. And I'd like to know a little bit more about the economic side now. So to me, it seems as if the costs of these disasters are being a bit underestimated. How economically relevant are weather extremes actually? Frederike, what's your take on it? So we did a study on the rainfall associated with Hurricane Harvey that hit uh, Houston in Texas in 2017 and found that um, the climate change made uh, just the rainfall associated with the hurricane about three times more likely. And so um, when you look at the economic damages from just the rainfall associated with that hurricane, it's a, uh, the damages are about $90 billion. And uh, economists have done then an attribution study um, using, using our scientific um, attribution study on, on the rainfall and, and transferred that into, okay, how much of the extra rain or the additional rain because of climate change led actually to damages and found that 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 about 67 billion dollars uh, were attributable to climate change and so you can see that from the overall damages even though um, the event itself only increased um, the likelihood only increased by a factor of three or, or the intensity increased by 15 percent um, the damages are huge because um, our social systems and our infrastructure systems are, of course, not reacting in a, or the costs of climate change are not scaling linearly with global mean temperature. 
but they are they are um, there you have a strongly non-linear effect that even if you have a little bit more rain or a little bit more more intense rain than your social systems have been built to so it shows us just how much not adapting to climate change and not mitigating climate change is costing society well there, there is a real point here if you get struck by extremes that have never happened before this is something that society of course is not prepared to and uh, one example from sea level rise for example uh, of course we are used to occasional storm surges happening but just the the last few centimeters extra are often causing the biggest cost think of new york in hurricane sandy there's a certain level when the subway tunnels flood and of course that hugely adds to the cost and uh, if if this happened like every 50 years or so in an extreme event, uh, they wouldn't be built uh, like that. But because it had never happened before, nobody was prepared to the subway tunnels running full of water. And uh, this very big cost arises because of new types of extreme events that we simply haven't experienced. We're not prepared for them. So we are not invulnerable. We have to take climate change very seriously. It creates huge problems for insurance companies because they need statistics from the past to estimate what the likelihood is for certain damages so that they can calculate the, the insurance rates. And now in a changing climate, you can't rely on the data and experience from the past anymore. And that simply makes it very costly. Indeed, costs, nobody can actually like this development. So how can we prevent this or rather how can we adapt and be better prepared for extreme weather in future? Well, we have, of course, we have to adapt to the extreme events that have already changed. Um, but we can absolutely do that. And I think the most important thing to do is to actually be aware that, especially in a country like Germany, where that I think is not a, a well-known fact, is that weather can be deadly. And you have to be prepared for, for heat waves, for, for heavy rainfall events. And that, that um, yeah, we, we have to teach our children but it, at schools, but also everyone who is not at school anymore, that um, how to, where to get information, what to do and how to, um, yeah, how to just in, a, in an immediate urgent case um, what to do because we can forecast these extreme events in weeks in or at least days in, in advance. Yeah, I would agree. I think that in, in the uh, wealthy, safe countries like Germany, we, we are kind of um, lulled into complacency and have these delusions of invulnerability which is, of course, uh, not realistic in uh, a world that is warming up. And uh, we are vulnerable as well. We have seen this uh, 2003 heat wave causing 70,000 fatalities in Europe. The mortality peak in France is higher than that of the corona epidemic. I think in future we might see court cases where such people that suffered huge damages, maybe not individual, but cities or so like New York from uh, flooding, actually sue fossil fuel companies for damages. Yes, and we already see these cases. So there's the prominent case in, in Germany, which is pending at the moment, which is um, uh, a Peruvian farmer um, 
Luya uh, suing RWE um, because of the melting of a glacier at, in the in the uh, in, in the mountains around the city of Forest that has led to largely increased um, glacial lake that is now threatening the city of Fures and is, is suing RWE because of RWE's contribution to climate change. So in that case, it really is, for that particular court case, the question that the courts have asked is, has have the emissions of RWE led to this threat? But they also asked the question, um, is there a threat in the first place? Um, because, and, 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 and how does how does that tie with the overall knowledge that we have of climate change? So you you don't just need the individual study, you need also the larger climate change context. So one more topic I would be interested in is uncertainty. So scientists use the word uncertainty quite a lot when talking about study results, especially when talking about extreme events. And the public sometimes seem to take this as You don't really know, do you? We just want concrete numbers. So how do you address this issue of uncertainty, both scientifically and when it comes to communicating the science to the public? Stefan, would you go first? Yeah, uncertainty is part, uh, or an analysis of the uncertainty is part of all serious science. That what's, what you learn in the first uh, semester at university Uh, if you do physics experiments or so, you can't just measure something and say, this is the number I got. You have to do a careful uncertainty analysis to see within what range you can confidently say that the, that this measurement actually is. Um, and so we are totally used as scientists to talk about uncertainty, but in the, in the public debate, of course, uncertainty is often used as a reason to dismiss results or just uh, ignore them. Uh, that is a mistake, of course. Uncertainty is not your friend in climate change because it goes both ways. And often the uncertainty of impacts uh, has, has shown that uh, they are actually have been more severe than climate scientists uh, expected as their best estimate. And... Um, Yeah, uncertainty definitely does not mean you should ignore this or we don't know what we're talking about. It means we are, we are doing kind of serious science where we don't just uh, put up claims, but we also immediately self-critically try to establish within what confidence range, maybe confidence range sounds better than uncertainty range, Uh, a certain result can be trusted. Yeah, and I think it's really important to, to remind people that this is not something that is just happening. As, as Stefan was saying, it's not just in climate science. Every science is, is working within uh, an uncertainty or a confidence range. We never, you will never see a scientific result, the result that is just one number. There is always, and sometimes the, the confidence range is, is very small, but And sometimes it's large, but we are actually really used to that also in um, in the real world. So I often give the example that if you if you think about how climate change affects extreme weather, it's very similar to how, for example, doping affects sports results. So you have um, you have a, a football player who's doped and they score a goal. Well, the goal was not just because they were doped, or the goal was not just because they are a good footballer, but it's a combination of both. And you will never be able to say that um, that 
this score this goal was only scored because of the doping and in the same way uh we can say that the the, the likelihood of him scoring a goal has increased and we can also say by how much if we if we know about the type of doping and so on and in the same way that's exactly the same what we can say and do with with weather and climate change and so it's not something that is alien to everyday experiences it's it's just it, it's just that when we label this with uncertainty in climate change it suddenly becomes something and it has become in the public discourse something shady but it's it's the opposite it's the sign of good science i like i like the comparison you just made yeah in in the public communication uh, this uh, often falls by the wayside and uh, journalists just quote the upper end of a range or so when there's the ipcc ranges for future warming um or if you listen uh, to radio or so and you get the typical forecast of economic growth for next year with which the economists produce uh, you don't hear an uncertainty range you say they predict 1.7 percent economic growth or so often more often than not i think is that number is actually wrong but uh, maybe for journalists and and uh, general public communication we need to get the public more used to reporting ranges Uh, confidence ranges rather than individual numbers which are either the best estimate or one end of the range or so which uh, can be quite confusing yes we have we have actually um when we started to do world weather attribution we reported the best estimate and then it ended up of course always being just the best estimate which is very wrong and so we started then to use the lower bound and has say it's made at least 30% more likely but then in the communication the at least got dropped so you actually end up with 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 again a wrong result so i don't think we have found a perfect solution for that but um so we have tried with some of the studies to actually not give a number but just a range but then people get very unhappy so i think this is something where where science communication is has still some way to go but i think if we would more consequently talk about ranges and not single numbers it would actually it would really help and it would also help um everyone to understand things like other scientific um results so i think we should we should be more bold there as scientists and not just assume that people are stupid and can only live with the one number but just say things as they are yeah very true and hopefully this podcast can raise some more awareness on this topic another question i have now um after you also talked about media and politics a bit so stefan you've been researching climate change for years and also teaching and warning about it for a long time do you feel that something has changed throughout the years yes i do think that the awareness has gradually grown but i i think it's been to me really frustrating because when i started off my career um as a young postdoc say in the beginning of the 90s i could not have imagined how long this would take before the public starts to understand uh, climate change because the evidence back then was already very clear and i would have expected that people re react to that and they respond that politicians would respond um but 
yeah, it's, it's basically taken forever. And now finally, uh, not necessarily because of her climate science communication, but because of Fridays for Future pressure on the streets and because of these extreme events uh, coming more and more often so that even lay people notice it. Uh, the, I think the tide is changing, at least here in Germany. I, I see that for the first time, uh, climate policy was quite a big issue in the election campaign uh, of all the, or all, almost all the parties, even though they didn't discuss it at a very uh, kind of depth of detail or so, but more still rather superficial slogans. In that sense, it was disappointing, but at least it was a big issue of concern. And so I hope that we are at a societal tipping point now where this issue, uh, this, this real crisis that we have with climate change starts to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And what's your take on this, Friederike, being based in the UK? Well, I think um, I would I would absolutely agree that definitely since since uh, Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Futures movement have um, have have started for real, um, the the awareness has changed, the rhetoric for for the politicians has changed, um, and um, I think the in the UK climate change has um, long been a, a political issue. They have the Climate Change Commission, so it it has not been a like like in the US, for example, a, a partisan issue. It's been both parties have um, have sort of had climate change as, as one of their concerns. There is still a long way to go um, to, to turn this rhetoric actually into into action, um, especially um, now with with Brexit, where um, the um, yeah where, where the UK is now doing trade deals which have no word about climate or the environment in 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 it at all. Uh, so so it's still um, disappointingly far away from from the Sunday speeches in 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 actual proper real legislation. Um, but I think what is um, what I have noticed particularly also how how it's changing in the finance sector uh, and, and in, in, in the business sector that um, finance and, and businesses want to know where are how can we how can we get out of fossil fuels how can we how can we make transparent where our fossil fuel risks are in terms of physical risks from a changing climate but also from from a trend transition risk so where where do we have investments in in fossil fuels that will be stranded assets in a, in a short amount of time so I think that that there the awareness has has really grown a lot and a lot of companies are moving away from from fossil fuel investments so I think that is um, and that is absolutely necessary to, to get the transition um, faster and of course it would be a lot faster if the legislation would would force these companies to do this faster but i think um seeing seeing this change in, in awareness and also in in the willingness to, to act on that is um is something that is that, that has changed really a lot in in a very short amount of time very true and let's hope there will be more change soon because we are already starting to see the results if no change happens 
Which actually brings me to the final question, um, turning to a very recent PIC study that found that a child born in 2021 will experience a two to seven fold increase of extremes in a scenario of current climate pledges. So this result left me, and I'm sure other people too, rather sad. And what about you, like being professionals in the business of extremes, so to say? Is it an emotional issue or is it something you just have gotten used to? Yeah, I, it is, of course, an emotional issue. And uh, I, I can say I have two children, but actually I was very much concerned about climate change before I had these children because I, I don't only care about my own children. I care about all children in the world in a way. And uh, to me, the most emotionally depressing aspects are Of course, when people, especially in, in poor countries, suffer from some horrendous extreme weather, and I know it's to some extent our fault. And also when I'm confronted with this massive denial of climate science, when people just try to downplay the climate crisis, etc., and and they're just really... Um, yeah, the, the lobby powers that try to to deceive people about climate science and try to um, paint it all as highly uncertain. That I find one of the most emotionally um, depressing aspects of the whole thing. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's, um, it's also definitely an emotional issue and not just because I have a son. Uh, I would also say that it was, it, it was um, much, it, it is independent of, of my own life And it is because globally, but also in every society, it's those um, who are most vulnerable and least responsible who are paying the price, and not only who, who are not only paying paying the price of of the extremes and and the damages that that we are seeing today, but who are also um, the ones who uh, who are then used as scapegoats for not um, not doing climate action. This is. Uh, what I find absolutely infuriating. So I think anger is probably the most, the main emotion that, that I have in, um, in this respect. But I think the way I deal with it is that I try um, to use the, um, the voice that I have and the, the fora that I have to, to, to point these things out and to try and help speed um, speed the transition and, and lead to, to action. I think that is, um, well, I quite often get the question of how, but climate science should be neutral. You shouldn't be an activist, which I think is, is completely is completely wrong because, um, well, of course, you need to do your science following scientific methods and have transparent, but you are absolutely allowed to be a human being and I think it's it's your responsible as a human being who cares about a just society to interpret what your results mean and 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 try to um to shape society yeah well I I don't think anybody would call doctors who warn us of smoking uh activists that I think this is a, a label that is put on us by people who Are against climate action and so they want to discredit the scientists and that's how it's being used. I think the Frederike has made an important point of how we can cope with it 
it is much easier to cope with the bad news about climate all the time when you're actually doing something about it. Uh, this is this is very important. If you feel just you're a passive victim and, and you can't do anything, I think that is much more depressing. But if you get engaged on any level in your community with some uh, environmentalist group or whatever, or just by speaking to your friends and neighbors about it, becoming actually active and trying to be part of the force for the better in the world, that helps a huge lot with dealing these, with these negative emotions that of course you're confronted with. And you meet a lot of very inspiring people as well. And that, that really keeps me going. You've been listening to Sustainability, the Potsdam Dialogues, science for a safe tomorrow. Thank you.